0: to talk about a subject which is very sensitive and will have all sorts of different meanings to different people here lord we lift this time before you lord we ask that your holy spirit will come upon this place in the name of jesus just to move and to fill here and lord as we consider this subject lord we pray that you'll give some insight some direction and lord we pray too that you'll bring some hope as well lord we want to meet with you This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Welcome to what is actually the first of the series of Mind and Soul seminars. Mind and Soul is an organisation which is set up to encourage people to think about the needs of people with mental health problems within the church, but also to get the mental health professionals to think about the spiritual needs of their patients, their clients. And I'm a director of Mind & Soul, but I also work for Premier Christian Radio in London. And I'm the manager of Premier Lifeline, the confidential telephone helpline. The reason I'm here is that for many years I was actually specialising in working with people who self-harmed and attempted suicide. And so for me, very much, this is an area which I've actually had quite a lot of dealings with over the years. So that's why I'm here. When I look around the room... I could begin to guess why some of you are here. Some of you may be here because you've got a friend who at some point may have self-harmed, a family member, someone at church, or maybe it's something which is a professional involvement that you've got in some way, or maybe actually it's something to do with you personally. But it's a range of people in the room for all sorts of reasons. But we're actually here to talk about self-harm I titled the talk, Self-Harm, Cutting to Cope. And in many ways, self-harm is one of those subjects which, for most people, the first thing you think about is it's just the sort of thing that makes you cringe. You know, most people are very concerned and frightened of pain, frightened of blood. You know, people run a mile often when they see blood pouring out. And it's, it's one of those things where self-harm people think, what's happening, what, what is it, why do people do it? So what is self harm? I'll start by saying what it's not. Self harm is not an attempt to kill yourself. And it's something which you really do need to sort of try to get you know, sort of to the point of understanding that most of the time when people talk about self harming, we're not talking about a suicidal act. There may have been some link in the past regarding suicide. And it's one of those strange sort of twists that I've known a number of people who are t- who've tried to attempt suicide by cutting their wrists and realised that actually by cutting your wrist it actually does something which helps you relieve the tension that's within you. And so actually they stop the suicide attempt because actually they've got some relief already. I'll come back to you a bit later as to why that's the case. But s- self-harm is not a suicide attempt. And we need to separate the two. And it's quite strange in my previous work when I actually brought the two together and I was the worker for suicide and self-harm. And so often people try to lock the two together, which actually they really need to be separated off. So it's not an attempt to kill yourself. And it's not an accidental injury. It's not the result of maybe someone who's been drinking and somehow harms himself because of you know, sort of a by-product of drinking or drug use is not that. It's not the result of some form of reckless behaviour. And it's not normally attention-seeking behaviour. Lots of people say, self, or someone who self-harms is attention-seeking. They are trying to get people's response. Actually, that isn't the case. I've interviewed, I don't know how many people over the years, hundreds of people over the years, and by far the majority of them, when they self-harm, they will hide what they do. And actually they will choose the place to self-harm normally as being somewhere which is not visible, rather than it is visible. Often they'll be looking at places on the body where they can cover it up. So we're not looking at something which is attention-seeking, So what is it? Self-harm is first and foremost a deliberate attempt to inflict injury to oneself. It has to have that deliberate nature to it. And it's looking at creating an injury, but it's not looking at killing yourself. It's not a nihilistic thing in that sense. So what does it include? The most common thing is that we are talking about cutting. Cutting using a knife or a blade, or maybe broken glass, or some other form of sharp object. And actually when people feel that there is this desperate drive to self-harm, it will basically be any sharp object you can find. So it will be a flint, or anything that can um, scrape you or scratch you. Even pins and paper clips and that sort of thing. It's anything that's to hand. So just heights sort of hiding a knife from someone is really not enough. You know, you're, you're actually looking at, you know, if you're needing to self-harm, and there's that drive within you to self-harm, you're going to find something somewhere, which has some, something that's sharp on you. So the most common thing is cutting. But beyond that, what else is there? Well, the use of points, needles. Rather than scratching or cutting, people actually stick things into them. And it's quite interesting because if you actually look at how certain... um, ..sort of uh, complementary medicine-type techniques work, like acupuncture, you're sticking points into you. And it's interesting to note that potentially the effect of self-harm in helping a person cope may have some similarities to why acupuncture seems to work in certain circumstances. And we'll come back to that later. So points and needles, but actually it's more than just that. You've got all the issues around hitting and bashing things. And actually, when when we talk about men and women, sometimes we often think about self-harm being a, a female problem it only affects females, doesn't it? Actually, it's not true. Although there is a difference between the number of people, between men and women, who actually present at someone like A and D, I'd probably see one man to every four women. But the fact is that often... What men would do would be something which would be seen as being, in a sense, more acceptably male. They're more l- likely to punch a wall, or do some damage to themselves which would not be seen as the sort of the obvious self-harming bit. But they'd still do something which would inflict the pain, the injury to themselves. So for some, it's hitting, bashing, whether it's hands, heads, you know, kicking, all of that sort of stuff but actually wanting to do it for pain. I know someone who always used to pull their hair. And what they actually did was they got a, a strand of hair and pulled it. And, what they actually, and it, the whole idea was to actually get that instant pain you get when you pull hair. And for them, that was one of the things they did. For others you actually get into things like maybe having tattoos and, or sort of if you have a, an injury, a scab or something, so playing with the scab. Or dare I say, biting nails. It's one thing biting your nails, but when you actually bite your nails at, to the point where it hurts and you actually don't let it grow because you keep biting because you're actually wanting the pain aspect. You know, w- this is the sort of thing we're talking about. But then you also get other ones which become slightly more unusual, like getting sandpaper and actually using sandpaper on the skin. And we'll explain possibly why that may happen in a little while. Then people who actually drink things, like bleach, which actually could be seen as a suicide attempt, but some of the people who use it are not. And then you've got things like burning, cigarettes. One of them... One of the more common methods I've seen over the years is someone who you know, sort of gets a cigarette and you've actually burn yourself with it. It's all quite, as I said, gory, quite horrendous, quite shocking. So why would anyone even think about doing this? Where would it start from? Why would, that, why would it ever enter someone's head? Well, actually, if you think about it, it's possible. they hear about it on the media. They hear someone talking about you know, you know, one of the many dramas, and they think, I'll try that. It actually does happen. Copycat things do happen. The media is actually incredibly powerful. I work for a radio station, and I have done for over 10 years now. But the media is powerful. And I, before I went to work for Premier, I was involved in some research based at a number of different general hospitals across the UK. And at that particular time, we were looking particularly at the suicide issues. But the same would apply with self-harm. Now, if you publicise something, you actually do sow the seeds into people's minds. And if you actually get to the point of feeling that way, you then think, maybe I will try that. I've also noticed it's been copycat within schools, copycat within adolescent units, copycat even within youth groups and that sort of thing. Because actually, if one person starts talking about it and says, it gives me some form of relief, then other people will be influenced by it. So actually, there is always an issue about talking about it. Sometimes, you may actually start off by attempting suicide. Because actually, one of the more common methods for people to attempt suicide in this country is by cutting your wrists which is quite strange because of all the issues around how much we cringe at blood and and gore and stuff. But actually, a lot of people think about committing suicide by cutting their wrists. The biggest problem with that is actually it's very hard to go through with it. Because there is that cringe factor. And when you start doing it, actually it's hard to go deep enough in the right way to actually kill yourself. But actually, once you start cutting, it has an effect And when it has the effect, you start thinking, yes, I want to recreate that effect. Um, What else may it be? Um, It could just be that at some point in your life, you've got to the point where you've been so frustrated, you've hit out. You've done something and you've actually started by getting a response from that or you wanted to punish yourself, or that sort of thing. So that's the range of why it could be found to be started. So how many people in a year are we talking about? Well, one estimate is something like 150,000 people per year presenting at hospitals, A&D, or equivalent. So actually, it's quite a lot of people in a year, 150,000. And I'd have to say to you, that's probably the tip of an iceberg. Because the only reason why you'd ever go to A&D is if you need to be stitched up, or if someone's made you go. If you don't need to go to A&D, then you've actually self-harmed, but without it ever being reported. So what are the real figures? Uh, Statistics are a real issue for me, because at times you can end up exaggerating way beyond what's reality. On the other hand, you can actually start saying it's very small. So it's, I actually think if we've got 150,000 as being a figure who actually presents, then let's be realistic. It has to be significantly more. Is it just young people? Well, for some people, it starts really quite young. And actually, it can start incredibly young, where actually children can actually get to the point of trying to find a way of coping with the life they're facing, and they start self-harming quite young. When they're still in what I'd still call a junior school, but it's what, middle school, I guess? Um, But certainly when you get into secondary school, it is significantly noticeable that there are a number of people there who are self-harming. Having said that, it's not just young people. If you start self-harming when you're young, it can continue through for some while. Like it becomes very much a part of your life. But it's also possible to start self-harming when you're older. And I've known people who are self-harming at all sorts of ages through life. It's not impossible to be older and self-harming. Or dare I say, elderly and self-harming. Or however you want to put the, the more senior members of our our society. I've already said it's not just women, it's men as well. And because men tend to focus on more destructive behaviour, and this applies to both suicide and self-harm, but you know, men tend to find the aggressive, more violent thing. People tend to explain it away as being the result of testosterone, but men tend to be more aggressive in what they do. So men tend to show it in a a different way. And it may be much more the expression of anger and violence and hitting things generally, or unfortunately people, but hitting things and actually resulting in harm to themselves. And sometimes that is deliberate. Um, So yes, often we would be seeing the women, but it affects men as well. But then you have the question, is it an illness? Is it an illness? And one of the biggest problems we had to struggle with in the work I was doing, that people were being referred to me because of their self-harm. And you almost got to the stage of everyone being seen as a self-harmer, and people became labelled by it. And everyone became known as, this is, you know, this is the self-harmer. A you know, and D would see it that way, and others would... It's just a way of categorising but actually, when you look at self-harm, self-harm is not an illness in its own right. I honestly believe, and I say to you quite strongly, it is a symptom of internal distress. Self-harm is not the illness. It is a reflection, an outward sign of the inner turmoil that's going on with that, within that person's life. If someone is self-harming, they are self-harming for a reason. If someone started to self-harm, they start to self-harm for a reason. It's a reflection on their outward life, or something that's happening inside. And I think it's far too easy to focus on the problem, as in the self-harming, the symptom, and actually not look inside. And at that point, I would actually say that applies not just to self-harm. That applies to a whole range of things which we might see as being addictive behaviours, compulsive behaviours, dependence-creating behaviours. When I was at Spring Harvest, recently speaking, I was looking at the whole range of compulsive behaviours. And one of the quotes I read was a quotation from the Metro, the London newspaper, where they were interviewing an American doctor, senior American doctor, who had become an alcoholic or become alcohol dependent. And his life had really got in, into the most incredible mess because of the alcohol. And it came to a climax when he presented at the hospital where he was working in this most really bad state, having had all sorts of complications through the alcohol use. And that shook him up. And so he actually started looking at what the issues were. And the more he looked, the more he realised that the alcohol was not the problem. It was actually something within him, which was the anxiety, the distress, the problems from within. And self-harm is an equivalent of that. It's very easy to focus on the symptom rather than looking at the underlying cause. So what is the thinking behind self-harm? Why would anyone want to do it? I could not stand here and say to you that I would understand every single person who self-harms, even with all the work I've done over the years. I couldn't predict it would be this or this or this. I couldn't go in saying, it's obviously going to be caused by whatever it may be. The reason is, you and I are unique individuals. Absolutely unique. God made us unique. And actually the reasons why a person starts doing something like this will be unique to them. We will be responding to a number of different things in our lives in different ways. And the person who begins to self-harm is responding to everything that's been thrown at them and how it builds up, the way it affects their lives, the way it affects their coping mechanisms. You put all it together in this mix. And for certain people, (coughs) they actually find that's the thing that triggers them to actually need to self-harm. So when someone starts doing it, what's happening? Well, for some, you could describe it as being a way of coping with inner pain. There's pain inside, and if there's pain inside, it's actually, for some people, easier to cope with physical pain than it is to cope with emotional pain. If inside you're screaming and crying out and you're absolutely desperate, sometimes to distract you from that pain that's within, you need something and actually external pain that you're inflicting on yourself is that distraction. And for a period of time, it is easier to cope with the external pain than the internal. Therefore, that could be seen as one of the reasons why people would self-harm. For others, it will be seen as being self-punishment. You feel guilty about something you've done And you are taking responsibility on yourself to actually punish yourself. And self-harm for some people could be seen to be a punishment. I had one particular client um, who actually had thought this one through. He was a man and he was working in the most incredibly logical way. He'd grown up in a Christian home. He'd actually got to the point where he could not believe in God because he realised if he believed in God, He would have to change his life. And so for him, he was aware about all the morality and all the moral issues and what he should or shouldn't be doing in his life. And to be honest, he really knew that he should be believing in God and actually talking to God. But the problem was that he was doing things which he knew for him were morally wrong. And so in his logical way of thinking, he had to be punished for it. And because God didn't exist, and at least that was what he was arguing, his logic said to him he had to be the person that did the punishment. And so for him, he punished himself through self-harm. Because he became his own judge, jury, and then the punisher as well. That's an extreme one, but that's a real story of someone I know or knew. It's also possible that you'll be experiencing guilt inside, which is not real guilt. It's not your guilt. It's been put on you by someone else. And it may be that you are expressing something within you where you are feeling guilty, but it's been put upon you. And at times that will relate to things like abuse, but whether that's physical or emotional or sexual, there's all sorts of different things where people try to transfer onto you their responsibility, their guilt. It's imposed on you. And that forced guilt may cause you to actually take it out on yourself as a punishment. It may be something about self-hatred that gives you that reason to actually start to look at self-harming. For some, it's a means of cleansing. The whole idea of letting out some poison from within. bloodletting, The sort of thing of trying to bring healing, trying to deal with something. And again, there could be all sorts of reasons why you would feel that you needed to deal with that poison. I'd say abuse, again, comes quite high on that. A step beyond that when it comes to cleansing is actually there are other ways not just of letting blood. People I've known who have actually um, sort of done things to try to cleanse their skin, whether it's through intensive washing or, like I said, with sandpaper and that sort of thing, you're talking about trying to bring cleansing, which, again, might relate to guilt, might relate, relate, relate to a number of things, but it's that whole thing about cleansing. And if there's something that you need cleansing on the inside, you might need to take something through the mouth to cleanse you, hence bleach or some other cleaner. What else might it be? Anger, anger at self, anger at others which you put into yourself. Infer it because you don't want to actually put it to someone to, towards them. It could be some form of ritualistic thing, something which relates to some (coughs) faith, some belief system when it comes to religion. If you look in the Old Testament, it's quite clear there are people there who are actually self-harming, which is part of a ritualistic belief system. And believe me, I've seen people who quite clearly have actually done it as being part of what they would see as being something that's ritualistic, but also they were quite screwed up inside as well. And it's almost as if one becomes focused on the ritual to actually meet the need. For others, it's like trying to take control of your life. If your life is feeling out of control, it is something that helps you take back control. It may sound absolutely bizarre... And way of trying to feel in control of your life is by self-harming. But if people around you are not letting you have any control at all about you, the one thing you've got control of is your body. And so for some people it shows itself in eating disorders. For others it can show itself in self-harm. For others, again, it can actually help you feel real. Help you feel alive. Because actually... If you are feeling absolutely numb inside, by self-harming, it reminds you that you are there. You are real. You are alive. There is something about you which is responding. And for some people, they are feeling so numb inside. This, for them, feels like the only way of doing it. So what is the aim of the person when they self-harm? It's not to die. It's not a suicide attempt. It's to live. It's to help them live. It's to help them cope with life. It's a coping mechanism. It's to help them survive. It's to help them feel alive. We may see it as gory, but for them, it is a means to live with what's happening on the inside. At which point, some of you will be thinking, "Okay, but... That still doesn't explain what it actually does. Why is it that it has some effect? What, what, what's all this about? And I think the bottom line there is you have to start looking at what's happening when you do it. Self-harm, self-injury, is an attack on your body. You are made by God with a body which works in the most wonderful, miraculous way. God has designed every single person in this room and every person that we may be working alongside who may have some issue about self-harming. But we are made as unique individuals with bodies which work in a way God has designed in a really special way. And that is quite key to understanding self-harming. Because God has designed us so that when we are injured, our body responds immediately. It comes to our rescue and it goes into an overdrive state to actually protect us, restore us, respond to us, and respond to what's happening. Your body is a miracle in the way it works. And what self harm does is it takes advantage of that and actually turns it around by actually using what God has designed. So what happens? Well, when you cut, your body starts to respond. It feels under attack. You actually have the cut. So the body starts thinking, we've got to do something about stopping the bleeding, start the healing, help the person cope with the pain, help the person cope with the... The threat, if you feel under a threat by the attack, you've got to respond to it. And all of this is automated. You actually go into that sense of both shock and adrenaline. The high of responding, everything is happening. The key thing about understanding self-harming is to understand the whole issue of endorphins. When we are attacked whether it's by ourselves or someone else, and there is an injury, the body produces endorphins. Endogenously produced morphine. (coughs) Or alternatively, endogenous opioid polypeptide compounds. A mouthful. But actually think about those words. Endogenously produced morphine. (coughs) Morphine? When do you hear that talked about? endogenous opioids. When do you think about (coughs) opiates? We are talking about the body producing chemicals within you which are incredibly powerful drugs. So by cutting, you're triggering an immediate mechanism within your body to trigger your body to produce a drug. You're not taking the drug in, you're making it yourself. But we are talking about drugs which have a similar effect on the brain to the chemicals like opium, morphine and heroin. We are talking about powerful drugs here. Things which have dramatic effects, very dramatic effects. One of my clients said to me that the impact on them... And the point of of your self-harming was more powerful than any sexual high that they'd ever had. And I've actually had that both from men and women. It really is a powerful effect. You cannot underplay the impact of self-harming on the body because it's triggering the body to respond. So if that's the case, you may start to then think, actually... There's a reason why people do this, and there's a reason why people get caught up in it. Because however you start, you begin to learn that your body produces this and has an effect. So, what does it do? It helps you to relax, it tranquilizes you, it makes you more peaceful, it brings relief produces a pain-killing effect. So the pain on the outside is being dealt with, but it also brings the internal pain, the pain-killing effect as well. It helps you to respond to the situation you're in. And it's designed to help you respond when you come under attack. So actually, if you self-harm, it helps you to think more clearly. You can see beyond the forest and actually start seeing something beyond. It gives you an energy level to actually react to the threat which makes you alert and active and full of life. And it gives you a release which actually helps you feel good. It gives you a high excitement. And if you think about someone who is in such dire pain on the inside, in such internal turmoil, such distress, and they actually find that by doing this, one or other or all or some of those effects start to happen. Even if they start by accident, you actually start to then realise why people continue doing it. And actually why it becomes, in my book, something that needs to be seen as being quite an important thing to look at and deal with. Problem one is it's only short-term relief. It has a short-term impact. We're talking about the chemicals being produced in the short-term to deal with the immediate situation. (coughs) They happen and then it goes away. So it deals with the now, but doesn't deal with the underlying problem. It doesn't deal with the future. And because of the endorphins, you've got a powerful fix. There's a the release. And it feels like a way of self-medicating. And it becomes cyclical. It becomes a habit. A dependency. A means of coping. And because the underlying problem's not dealt with, the pressures build up again. And therefore there's that pressure to do it. And in that sense, an addiction. And there is, obviously, if a person presents this way, a need for help. Because if you've got someone who has got the pressures within, it's like that pressure cooker where there's a build-up of pressure, the build-up of pressure, the build-up of pressure. What are they going to do about it? And for someone who's learnt that self-harm is a way of coping, the pressure will lead to the pressure to self-harm. Unless you can deal with whatever's creating the pressure, there's always going to be that pressure for them to self-harm. For others, it will be alcohol. For others, it will be drug use. For others, it may be gambling. For others, it may be sex. For the person who is self-harming, that's the way they are learning how to cope. If you try to say to a person, you must stop and just stop now and you don't deal with what's underneath, the pressure's not going to disappear. And it's like having a squishy ball and it's got something sticking out of it and you push it in and it comes out the other side. And if the self-harming is the bit you push in, it may come out the other side as being some other compulsive or addictive type behaviour. And I've known over the years people who have... Been involved in self-harming, the self-harming's been stopped for what, in whatever way, and they've then started to use alcohol or drugs or gambling or sex. Or, and it applies to a lot of these compulsive behaviours where if you say, stop it, don't do it, and you fight really hard. Unless you deal with the cause, the problems do not go away. And we always find means of coping. and it becomes increasingly a problem. It's like a floating ball where you push the ball down. And the more you push it down, the more of a struggle it becomes. And at some point, you just cannot keep that ball down. So what are we looking at here when it comes to the problems? We're looking at having to Understand two things. One, that there are underlying problems. It could be anger, hurt, pain, abuse, guilt. A lot of things I've discussed. The underlying problems have not gone away when the person starts self-harming. They're being coped with. So you need to look at the problems and actually deal with the problems. But you also have to deal with the dependency. So helping with someone with self-harm is a twofold thing. <coughs> because unless you deal with the problems, the pressure's still there. But if you just deal with the problems and you don't recognize the dependency, you won't recognise that actually the person's become dependent on. There's a habit, there's a compulsion to, and I would describe it as an addiction to the effect of the self-harming. Think about my comparison with the morphines and the opiates and the rest. So you actually need to be quite careful with that because you actually need to focus in both ways. In the Bible, where does it talk about self-harm? I've already referred to the times when it's used in ecstatic worship as being ritualistic. For some, it's ex- ex- the expression of pain and grief in mourning. But where else? it also seen as being the act of someone in extreme distress in the graveyard in the New Testament, the Gadarene. So it is mentioned in the Bible. But what it actually comes down to it, the person who is self-harming is not the self-harmer. It's the person. It's the individual. And I go back to what I said earlier. Do not see them as being the person identified by the problem but a person that needs God's love and God's help. A few years ago when I was talking to one of my clients um, she was the most incredibly bright person but incredibly, incredibly damaged and I said to her if you had the opportunity to write down an insider's view about self-harm what would you write? And in fact, I've actually got a copy of this, which you can take with you after today's seminar. Self harm and insiders few: the do's and don'ts of self harm. And this is someone who both self harmed and also at times got into such a state she attempted suicide, and the two were sort of running parallel. I think it's probably fair to say she was the most challenging, or one of the most challenging patients of the whole area health authority, in. Uh, and actually how to respond to this particular person. That's why she was my patient, my client, in that I was a specialist working deliberate self-harm. And I think in many ways, my colleagues thought, yes, at last we've got someone who we can allocate this person to. (sighs) Quite a challenge. Anyway, this is what she said. Number one, and it's in her order, I've not edited it, Number one, never give up. Number two, never make them feel that they are playing games or that they're just a pain because that makes them feel worse about themselves and increases the self-harm thoughts within them and the thoughts of suicide. Never ignore a suicide threat because whether or not it's serious or it's just a cry for help, it could go wrong. And it's too late after someone's dead to say, I wish I'd done this or that. Always try to give the best and most accurate treatment from the beginning. The longer the illness goes on for, the harder it is to cure because the more it gets a hold on someone, and the longer it goes on for, the more of a way of life it becomes. Always try to emphasize on the person's good points. They feel bad enough about themselves without it being reinforced by the people around them. Always be honest to a patient about their treatment. Because on the whole, people with personality problems are intelligent people and they will eventually find the truth out for themselves. If they find out they've been deceived, they will mistrust people around them even more. People with personality problems have a low level of trust at the best of times. And actually that is reminiscent of something someone said to me fairly recently where a family had um, misled a family member. And this family stroke church situation and something was not said that should have been said at the appropriate time. And this person actually was bright enough to see through it. And it really was one of those times when people were trying to avoid talking about something to protect, not the patient, the, the person who had the, the problem, but to protect themselves because they didn't want to face it. But that is what my, my client said. And there's a handout for people to take with them at the end of the session. So what is my considered response? Well... Self-harm may be something that shocks you, affects you, may seem incredibly gory, but I'd be saying to you, treat it as a matter of fact. It happens. It's unlikely to kill the person, and your body is designed to heal. What is not good is for you to react with high emotion. Do not respond in an over-the-top way, and... This again is in the handout. Intense emotion can feed the craving, the need, the desire to self-harm. And although the person may not be seeking attention in the first place, if you respond in a very emotional, over-the-top way, if you respond by giving lots of attention, it can actually give the person a secondary gain. And actually they can end up looking for that and become dependent on you. Do not actually let the person threaten you with cutting or attempt to transfer responsibility onto you. Do not encourage them to become dependent on you. They actually need to be encouraged to be responsible for themselves. Like you need to be responsible for yourselves. You're not responsible for their actions, whoever it may be. It ends up being their choice and it remains so. I've never encouraged someone to self harm, but if you overreact, it can make it worse and make it more likely for them to do it. And if someone does it, the key thing is they need to be able to have the cut cleaned and dealt with. If it needs stitches, it needs to be sent to a professional to do the stitches. If it's something else, it needs to be dealt with. Be practical about it. What the person needs is support for you to be there for them, to treat them with respect as an individual that God has sent For you to respond to at that time, to listen to them. Because first and foremost, they are a person, a person that God loves, a person that God has created, a person who's in great distress on the inside. And there's a need to pray with them if it's appropriate. Those are very practical measures. And first and foremost, it's a question of responding, not with shock and horror, but to actually give them time and meet the need which is there. And to find them help and support. Help and support which may come in different ways. It may be they need to go to a counsellor, a prayer ministry... Maybe they need to go to a specialist rehabilitation type place. There's a range of different places around. I'm here as a director of Mind and Soul. And what we actually did was we, we created the Mind and Soul Zone here at CRE because we wanted to bring together the organisations which were involved in health and healing and ministry and mental health and emotional care. And actually, if you go into the Premier Pavilion, you'll find behind the main bookshop a row of something like ten organisations together, one of which is Mind and Soul, and another is Premier Lifeline. But within that, you've got Mercy Ministries. Mercy Ministries run a residential unit up in Yorkshire, and in fact, on their stand, you've got a book. The Mercy Series, and it's Mercy... Self-Harm by Nancy Alcorn. Um, I have the, the copies here are my own copies, but if you want to have a look, you can look at the copies here. But they have copies of this to buy on the Mercy Ministry stand in the Mind and Soul zone. Anorexia and Bulimia Care have a document, a booklet, which is free, and it's available on the Anorexia and Bulim- Bulimia Care stand. In the Mind and Soul site in the Premier Pavilion. So, if you actually want more information, I also have three other books here. It's really interesting over the years I've been working in this field. For many years, there was almost nothing really as Christian resources. It's wonderful that over <coughs> the last few years, there's been a, a sudden influx of Christian resources. And there are three other books. One is the, the Cutting Edge by Jess Wilson. One is Self-Harm, The Pathway to Recovery by Kate Middleton and Sarah Garvey. And the other is Secret Scars by Abigail Robson. And so you've got a range of books now on the subject. Recognising that there is a need, recognising that it's an issue within the church, recognising there is a challenge that we need to respond to. For some people it's actually going to be important to go to a Christian healing type situation by prayer ministry. And we've got a range of those on within our stands as well. The Christian Healing Mission, our Ministries, Essex Christian Healing, um, and, and we've got Acorn Christian Healing. Um, and so you've got this whole range. And Green Pastures in on, which is on the south coast which offers somewhere and it's then a question of finding the right place for the right person. For some, prayer ministry is appropriate. For others, counselling is appropriate. And one of our organ- organisations is the uh, Association of Christian Counsellors. And on, on my stand, on the Mind and Soul stand, we have free copies of the UK Directory of Christian Counselling and Care. But for others, it's prayer ministry, for others, it's residential care. So there's that range of need. You might ask me all sorts of questions, and we're going to open the floor for questions in a moment. But to preempt one, is it a spiritual issue? Um, The answer, obviously, is that there is a lot of hurt and pain on the inside, and a lot of that needs to be dealt with. And therefore there is a massive issue there, which actually needs spiritual input. Is it a demonic issue? Well, obviously, if you look at the Gadarene, there's a demonic aspect to it. But I wouldn't play on everything that has anything to do with self-harm is first and foremost a demonic thing. We're talking about individuals who are in great distress, great turmoil on the inside. And from my perspective, as with any distress, there may be a demonic aspect potentially with it. And obviously, in the Bible, Jesus actually cast out those demons. But I wouldn't go there first. You need to look at the person, their needs, work with the individual, their distress, and actually come to anything that's to do with deliverance. Way, way, way down the line. At which point, I'm going to open the floor for questions, and my colleague Ian's going to allow you to ask one or two questions. Any questions? Uh, is there any um, personality, commonality, uh, commonality on personality types? or you know, And, and do you get t- t- sort of within a family where there's issues, um, should we say a brother and sister at different ages or two brothers similar ages, who actually cope differently? One self-harms, one doesn't, that sort of issue. Well, um Over the years, I have known people within the same family self-harm. On the other hand, I've known people within the the same family experience the same issues and cope with them in different ways. And I think that shows how unique we all are. We are all very different and unique. And even within a family, we're unique and we'll respond in different ways. So it can be within a family that people respond the same way, but it may well be they'll respond in very different ways. Um, Personality types, um, it really is a a question underneath of what's happened to the individual to make them where they are. All of us are here today as you are coping with life based on everything you were born with, and it will take far too long to explain what I mean by that, plus everything that's happened to you through your life to this point. And for the people who are self-harming, they have learnt at some point in their life that the means to cope with that distress is self-harming. But we all have ways to try to cope with life. We all have our own... It's like if, so, if you go to a, a, a cocktail party, you'll be asked, what's your poison? Yeah? What's your poison? they asking you, what, what do you want to drink? But what's your poison really means, <coughs> what is it, in a sense, that you use to help you? And I'd say to you, the person who's self-harming, it's found that that, in a sense, is their poison. It's their way to cope. It could be a whole range of other things. And there's some things which are much more acceptable than others. Self-harm is just the goriest version. Um, any words of wisdom on where I go next with someone who's very comfortable with their self-harming? and for whom their self-harming is a friend that they're not yet ready to let go of? Whereas I would never say to you I would want, I'd never want to encourage self-harm, if, if, if at the moment it's their friend, it's their way of coping, um, the important thing is to support them as an indiv- individual, to give them the feeling that they are important, that they are respected that they are, they are special in God's eyes and you're sharing God's love with them. And actually pray that at some point God reveals to them that this is a coping mechanism which is not what God wants for them. Because it's like any other dependency. At some point the person has got to come to realise it is a wrong coping mechanism and it needs to change. Whether you know going back to alcohol or drugs or whatever it is, it has to come to the point where the individual themselves wants to want to change, and so I would say support them, encourage them, pray for them, and enable them to build up their self worth, their self esteem, and give them an opportunity to deal with whatever was underneath. But when it actually comes to dealing with the dependency, they've actually got to face the fact that it's a wrongful dependency. And I've got time for one more question. Any more? Are you able to say whether you think there's an increase in the number of problems that manifest, as there's been an increase in the fragmentation of families, single-parent families, breakdown of families? I said earlier, I'm not that happy about statistics and and, and, and all the rest of it, but... I would have to say to you that the more there is a breakdown in relationships, the more there is the insecurity, the lack of self-worth, the issues around that self-esteem, the fragmentation of families and the, you know all, all this thing about actually who is my parent? Is it the one I've got today or actually the one I had a few years ago and all the rest of it? And on top of that, all the issues around um, belonging and emotional turmoil, then I there is greater potential for it. But it's one of many means of coping with the situation. So yes, there'll be an increase in this, but there's also an increase in the other poisons, the other way to cope, ways to cope. OK, um, I think that's the time is up. Thank you for coming. There is a hand up to take at the back. So on your way out, there's one each for everyone. Um, if you want to have a look at the books, have a look. But they are my own copies. Um, there's something I haven't mentioned I should have done is Mind and Soul is developing a new course which is similar in some ways to the Alpha course and what it is it's actually looking at emotional well-being encouraging emotionally mental health friendly churches and we're looking for pilot um, churches so that if you come from a church where you might be interested in actually hosting one of these in the next few months. Um, There's some information here which you can actually have a look at. Um, There's actually copies of the pilot course actually on the Mind and Soul stand, so if you want to have a look at them. There's just a couple of uh, um, sample copies there. But it is actually trying to get churches to wake up to people's emotional needs. And on the Mind and Soul stand there's also leaflets about Mind and Soul and Lifeline and I would have to say, um, if, is that this month? Yep. If you go, is on the Premier stand? I'm being, I'm being told something which I didn't know. On my alternative stand, which is the Premier stand, you've got copies of YouthWork magazine. And what I didn't realise, because this has come out since I was last in the office to see it, is actually self-harm understanding why and how to respond. So go to the premier stand in the premier Pavilion for that. But these and the leaflets are actually on the mind and soul stand. I encourage you to go to the mind and soul um, zone with all the, the stands there as well. Thank you.